Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. Uh, Mike McIntyre is off this week, but we are here for our Wimbledon recap episode and very happy to break down all the coverage with a senior sports journalist for iNews. He's also a host of the Love Tennis podcast. Happy to welcome James Gray to the show. James, thanks so much uh, for joining us uh, right after Wimbledon. Ben, thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, no, uh, really, really appreciate it. And I, I suppose we should tackle what's fresh on everybody's minds. And that is a fourth consecutive Wimbledon crown from Novak Djokovic, seventh overall. And uh, now Novak up to 21 majors. I, I suppose my first question, what impressed you maybe the most uh, about his, his fortnight here at the All England Club? I mean, there's a lot, right? That's a long list. Um, I suppose it's the relentless comebacks. I mean, he just has become this guy who loses the first set now for fun. And I, do, I was actually looking at it today because I was writing something and he did it at the US Open last year. I hadn't realized that his four matches up to the final uh, of the US Open last year, he lost the first set. And he did it here. He, you know, he lost the first set. Or he lost the first two to Sinet. He lost the first set to... Um, in the, in the semi-final as well, so Cam Norrie. And it, it, I don't know what it is, whether he's like deliberately luring people into this kind of trap where they think, oh my God, I want to set against Djokovic and then sort of just implode mentally. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it is amazing the way he seems... I don't know, you, I guess you look at it two ways, right? You, you could either say, well, he's, he's just sort of starting slow and that's actually like a flaw. Or you could look at it and say, well, he loses the first set. It doesn't bother him on any level. I think the way I look at it, and Ben, you might disagree, is is I kind of look at it as him putting a bit more data into the computer, like just like accumulating a bit more data, seeing what the opponent's doing on that day and being like, okay, we make the game plan after the first set and I know I'm good enough to win it, maybe only dropping one more set. And I really do think that he just, I'm not going to say that he doesn't have a game plan going in because he clearly does, although... Goran Ivanisovic did claim that he didn't have a game plan for the final. He said, oh, there's no point in making a game plan for Nick Kyrgios because he's so unpredictable. Well, you do sort of know what he's going to do. Like, you know he's going to serve massive and like whip his forehand around and flatten his backhand out. But anyway, um, so yeah, I, I think basically he just he's become a great match player and just a great game planner on the run. Yeah, uh, no, I, I like that perspective a, a lot. And now 28 straight matches won at, at Wimbledon. I mean, we always talked about Australia being his ultimate hunting ground and suddenly Wimbledon is really not far behind. But you're right, it, it does feel like he's easing his way into the match in the early stages. And for me, I guess that the turning point of that event was that comeback from two sets to love down against against Yannick Sinner. It, it reminded me of two other matches he's played, and they both happened at the French Open. Two sets to love down against Stefano Tsitsipas, and similarly, um, at that same French Open last year, two sets to love down against Lorenzo Musetti. And I think now we've reached a stage where we're watching him. He's down two sets to love, and you almost feel like it's a 50-50 match at that point. Mm. Yeah, I, I sort of wrote the exact same thing this morning, basically, that he, I don't think the bookies ever had him as an underdog in that match, even when he was already two sets down. Because, you know, we've seen this film before. We we know what happens when Novak goes two sets down. It 
it's pretty remarkable, really. I also think, you know, Yannick Sinner plays tennis one way. And if if you can kind of get inside that one way, he probably doesn't have much of a plan B. Um, I think really in that match, Novak just stepped his level up a lot. Mm-hmm. I think he didn't play particularly well those first two sets and, and then he played better. And so often those those five set Novak matches aren't actually very good because they're quite often him playing quite poorly for two sets and then just playing really well for three. And it's like, well, it's not really a, a sort of epic, you know, tussle. It's just, just two matches back to back, really, that happen to be different lengths. But I guess that's best of five tennis. You know, you, you've got to win three out of five. You can't just win two. Yeah. And and uh, look, that's sort of what Nick Kyrgios described, I think, after losing. He was uh, 2-0 and in their previous head-to-head. But at best two out of three, things can happen so quickly. He described it even just after winning a first set. You feel like you have to win two more. It's like a mountain to climb mm. uh i guess just chatting a bit about nick curios did you feel he he belonged in that final did he look out of place or, or is this a guy who's like oh okay you know what this is reasonable yeah I, I think he did i think he did belong i mean and it's easy to say he won the first set and therefore he did belong but um he just he focused up he served pretty well for the most part um as we know he can i think he he found a level that was really competitive. Um, I think I hadn't really appreciated his backhand before. Um, like I sort of just in my head, he was just Matteo Berrettini, but slightly different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually think that he has a better backhand than Matteo Berrettini. I think his forehand is not as good as Berrettini's, but um, you know, Djokovic found a really hard to attack off the Kyrgios backhand because it was like flat and it skidded through, and it's very effective on grass and. You can see how it's more of a weakness on on hard courts because you know it doesn't necessarily stay so low and therefore it's a bit easier to you know take him down the line where you're always going to have a reasonable amount of space and I actually think Djokovic found that quite hard to do and you saw him resort to the slice and you know trying to dig it in and and skid it through which you know I don't think he has much competitive edge on the slice backhand against Kyrgios who's got you know such good hand skills so yeah I, I think he did belong he. He played pretty solid for the most part. Yeah, there was the usual kind of... Someone said to me, oh, Nick Kyrgios made a bit of an idiot of himself. I was like, mm, I don't think you've watched enough Nick Kyrgios, mate, because in the grand <laughs> scheme of things, like that was not a bad Nick Kyrgios sort of super brat performance. Yeah, he got distracted, and yeah, he was screaming in his box, but I think what he's kind of highlighted or identified is that you can shout at your box as much as you want, and that's okay. Like, you can't shout at line judges, you can't shout at umpires, you can't shout at your opponents, you certainly can't shout at the crowd, but you can shout at your box. And, like, tennis is morality, as well as it's, like, written-down rules, but also, like, the sort of pearl-clutching that we go through sometimes on a Monday morning after a Nick Kyrgios match. He's realised that he can scream at his box, and if they're okay with it and he's okay with it, everyone else is kind of okay with it. Now, that might change in the timbre of what takes place over the next month, like shouting at his girlfriend in the box might not look particularly good depending on how things play out but for the moment he's kind of identified a way he can get away with being Nick Kyrgios. Yeah I, I think you're uh, highlighting a, a good point here for, for people who maybe haven't watched as much Nick Kyrgios as you said um, not really taking kind to his behavior during the final but <laughs> for his uh, what we're used to uh, seeing from his side that kind of ranked on a low scale of bad mm. behavior for him 
is I guess maybe that is why he is yelling at the box. Is this like his kind of way of outwardly channeling emotional frustration? He knows like, well, I'm not actually mad at the box. I'm just internally angry and I have to release it. Let's release it in that direction. Yeah. I mean, I always liken Nick to a teenager and I don't mean that kind of derogatively, but when you're a teenager, you find yourself in really stressful situations and you have no idea how to deal with them. And Nick was in a Grand Slam final, uh, a really stressful situation, and he had no idea how to deal with it. So what teenagers do is they act out and they lash out, and, and Nick kind of doing the same thing. Um, if you listened, and I, I was on court, but I would stick my headphones on for the changeover so that I could hear what he was saying a bit better. Mm-hmm. And it, what he was saying, or his kind of biggest rant was uh, his box. He, he makes his box stand up at every point. So at the end of every point, they all stand up and they all sit down. It must be exhausting. I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. But he was saying, oh, you know, 40 love, 40, 15. Why do you relax? Well, you know, this is you like slumping back in your chair. Why do you chill out at 40 love? And actually, when you think about what he was saying, and he had blown 40 love on a service game a couple of times, he was actually saying to himself, yeah. why are you chilling out at 40 love? Why are you chilling out at 40, 15? Right. So it's an aggressive and quite unpleasant way of doing it, but... He's actually just trying to work stuff out and he doesn't, you know, Djokovic just sits there silently and has those conversations in his head most of the time. But Kyrgios, I think, yeah, he just doesn't doesn't have that filter. He's he's still a very much a work in progress from a mental perspective. So it's all a bit raw and mixed up and, you know, he's working it out in his own way and I don't like it. Like I, I, I've said this before and when Gilles Savara walked out on Daniil Medvedev in, uh, I think it was in Halle, mm-hmm. like, I, I I posted something on Twitter saying like, why don't coaches do this more? Like I would not tolerate some of the stuff that I mean. Andy Murray's terrible for it, like just screaming all sorts of nonsense at his box. Right. And someone pointed out to me, oh, they're very well paid, and I was like, that shouldn't be justification for like bullying in the workplace. Like it yeah. shouldn't. We shouldn't make it okay. Nick Kyrgios somehow has, and I guess they sit down at the end and talk about it, and no one holds a grudge, but. I know that Amelie Moresmo used to hide. She used to not sit in the players' box when she was coaching Murray because she ha- she just hated getting screamed at so much. So she'd go and sit like in the top row of, of the O2 Arena or something. And I think that's probably in the end what killed that that coaching relationship. And um, I'm not. I mean, Nick doesn't have a coach, so he can't. You know, <laughs> he can't get rid of that. But it, it's definitely not. It's not normal, is it? Like, you, if your boss started shouting at you like that, you would just quit. Yeah, it's uh, it's not uh, allowed in in any other work environment, right? No. Um, and yet we we've tolerated on on the tennis court. And I, I suppose Nick Kyrgios is a bit of a an enigma himself. But for me, like the quote of these last two weeks describing Nick Kyrgios was Stefano Tsitsipas after that loss, uh, saying he bullies people. And and we seem to have that example in every match. In a way, he is bullying his box. Uh, however, uh, they, they allow it to continue. And if, of course, now he's a first time slam finalist. So maybe he's looking at this and, and saying, mentally, I've actually done quite well over the past two weeks. He, I mean, he literally said almost exactly that. He said, I thought I put in a great mental performance. Even right. against Sitsipas, he called that like a really good mental performance. And in fairness, like, I like the mental warfare. And I, again, as I've said before, I think Kyrgios oversteps the line. But I like the idea that tennis is a kind of psychodrama. Mm. And Tsitsipas is like the perfect matchup for Kyrgios from a mental perspective. Like, he's so, he's pretty mentally fragile 
uh, in a tennis sense. I don't mean in a sort of mental health yeah. sense. I mean in a in a purely like mano a mano tennis sense. And Kyrgios just got in his head so easily. And as soon as he realised he was getting in his head, he just ran with it. He was like, "Well, I, I'm you know I'm all over this." And you know, tennis is such a one on one sport that you really can't show that weakness. And even even Djokovic said it about the final. He said, "As soon as Kyrgios started shouting at his box, and you was onto something." And it must just be great to see when your opponent's losing it like that. Like it, you just know you're you're in, and and that's what Kyrgios saw in Tsitsipas. Who, I mean, if Stefan Tsitsipas wants to win Grand Slams, he's he's gonna have to toughen up. Like his game is just about there. I don't know. I don't know about the backhand, but it's getting there. Uh, but he, he's not gonna win slams against you know. I think even even once the big guys are gone, even once Djokovic and Nadal and the man who used to be Federer are gone, he's not going to win slams against Carlos Alcaraz and Daniil Medvedev and people like that if he can't stiffen up mentally. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's well said. Just circling back to Djokovic for for one moment, obviously from the historical perspective, this title seemed really crucial. Now moving up to 21, just just one behind Rafa surpasses Roger Federer. And now we're approaching a summer North American hardcourt swing where we could see Djokovic, of course, missing the U.S. Open at Flushing Meadows, if uh, depending on a vaccine mandate, if he can go to the United States or not. Was that extra provided motivation? Maybe he doesn't need extra provided motivation, as it were. <laughs> but but how, how important was this title for Novak in, in that context? I suppose. I think it was more important in the context of what had gone before compared to what is to come. Um, Novak talks an awful lot about his emotions, and I, I don't always agree with what he's saying or buy everything that he says. But when he says that it was a really turbulent time, you know, the beginning of the year and what happened in Australia, I completely buy that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, losing your freedom, you know, something you've prepared for for the last three months and then being told you can do it and then you can't do it and then you can do it. You know that that's obviously huge emotional stress, and I do buy that the next couple of months are really tough for him to to find his best level on the tennis court because you're just constantly being reminded of what happened, like even now. So that takes time to deal with, um, and I think in that context, and having been beaten pretty well, beaten by Rafa in Paris. I mean, I know losing to Nadal, Roland Garros is no big deal, but you know he was he's it's the quarterfinals, and he was pretty much played off the court. Um, to come to Wimbledon, you know, a place where he's always been kind of the third or fourth favourite, not in terms of the bookies' favourite, but in terms of the hearts of the crowd. You know, he's a he's now a seven-time winner, but he came here a six-time winner, and people still aren't that keen on They'd still rather Murray or Federer or Nadal, mm-hmm. and, and or Serena, I, I actually should say. And to come here and do that, and the way that he did it, you know, with the comeback victories as well, I think that's a pretty big emotional kind of boost to have that he's going to need it like you know he's going to have to be like a camel in the desert with a hump full of emotional joy because he's probably not going to play a grand slam for until may 2023 now like he i i don't think the us rules are going to change um in time for him because i mean i suppose they can always fast track the visa application so in theory he has six weeks for biden to change his mind uh, as he said but I don't think that looks very likely. And then the Australians have got this compulsory three-year ban on visas for anyone who applied, who's been deported. They again could waive that, but you know, who can guess what politicians are going to do? And Mm -hmm. I know that the people in Australia 
did not like Novak, still don't really like Novak uh, outside the tennis community. And so it's going to be hard to see them making a change on that front as well. So he's literally going to have 10 months. Look, what's he going to do this summer? Like, I I don't know what the rules are in Canada, but presumably he can't come to Canada either. No, that would be his only option. Yeah, I I presume it's actually the same rule. So Mm. in terms of mapping out his schedule, uh, I I, I don't think, no, I, I don't think he can, he can't really travel to Montreal and then suddenly, you know, he's going to be stuck there, can't, can't play the U S open. So uh, yeah, he mentioned, I guess uh, in his post-match press conference talking about Lafer cup and Davis cup as a priority, mm. but you know, that uh, sounds the alarm bell of someone who doesn't really fully have a schedule, right? Because we're talking yeah. about an exhibition event. And, and then of course uh, the, the event representing his country, these aren't events where you can collect ATP points. No, and he's he's already said he's not going to go chasing like you know, two you know he's not going to go play the clay court two fifties in Bastad right. or anything like you know right. you're not going to find him in South America at the end of August. Um, yeah, I mean Labor Cup is ten weeks away, if not more actually, it might be eleven. Um, he he might play that great, really good. I'm annoyed because it's in London and I have a wedding that weekend that I can't get oh, out of, so I'm going to miss the Labor Cup with <laughs> Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. Um, anyway, it's an exhibition event, doesn't count. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he probably won't play proper competitive tennis until yeah. Davis cup in November. I mean, and then by the way, who knows what the ATP looks like in autumn, like there's not going to be a China swing we think. So God knows what they're going to do with them. Um, it, it really does make the rest of his year look incredibly uncertain and don't underestimate the emotional toll that takes as well. I know he's been through one turbulence this year and come out the other side and won a grand slam, but. I mean, it's going to be pretty brutal for him, to be honest. I hadn't really quite appreciated until literally thinking about it yesterday that there is literally no tennis for him until September now, like because of the vaccine mandate. And I mean, that's almost as as probably worse than what happened in Australia in some ways. That's longer out of the game for sure. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's more significant. Before we shift over to the women's side, we'll we'll touch just quickly on on Rafael Nadal, who uh, I thought was playing some great tennis, honestly, uh, especially as he entered the second week of the All England Club. He, he seemed to really find his footing on the grass, and then it was difficult, of course, to to watch at times this uh, wild quarterfinal epic with Taylor Fritz, where where you can see him wincing in pain. You see these serves, you know, traveling into the net at barely a hundred miles per hour and you're thinking how is he physically sustaining and holding up over this match and then how on earth does he win it uh but it's another major where rafa has to pull the plug he's for for a player who's currently leading on the grand slam count it's staggering the number of times he's he's been betrayed by his body Mm. i mean you play tennis the way rafa nadal plays tennis like it's going to be pretty hard for your body to keep up and you know the the foot thing is congenital or why mm-hmm. it's uh, i think it's pretty like rarely understood because it's a very rare condition but that's probably not necessarily because of the strain he's put on his body but lots of the other things related to it you know are because he plays long tennis you know it, his matches take a long time that's both true. because because he spends 20 seconds between every point faffing around but also because the points he plays are long um, and, you know, that kind of 5 10% more out of everything you're having to do takes its toll. You know, if Nick Kyrgios played tennis the way Rafa Nadal does, he would not last 10 minutes because Nick Kyrgios' body can barely cope with the way Nick Kyrgios plays tennis. 
Um, and, you know, Novak Djokovic is actually pretty miraculous that he's had quite so few injuries. And, and frankly, he's had a couple of big ones yep. because he plays tennis a similar way. But he is just incredibly lean and fit. And, you know, there are reasons for that. And obviously there's all the spiritualism and veganism and meditation and the magic potion, as he called it yesterday. Yes, which that's right. I think he's building up to releasing a line of supplements. I th mm -hmm. It's nothing more sinister than that. It's just that he's going to like do a big release and try and make a load of money out of it. Hopefully for his foundation rather than for his, you know, personal gain. Yeah. Um, which is the only way I'd really approve of Novak, like, you know, crushing up a specific tour sort of mushroom and then putting it in a straw and selling it for a hundred pound a gram. Yeah. Um, which is what I assume is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I'd gather that. Yeah. But yeah, I think that Nadal is, is this is just what we're going to have to get used to. Like, he's going to try and play like a young guy and, and he's an old guy with an old body. And I don't know how many years he's got left. Uh, I think probably having a family, he says it won't change his professional life. I think it will. Yeah. Because he, he always used to say, didn't he? He always used to say, I wouldn't start a family while I was still playing on tour. And like, yeah, and that's that changed. changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So. No, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly see what happens. I, I think it's now 12 majors that he's missed due to injury and upwards of, of 13 where an injury has cropped up at some point during the major, uh, of course, affecting his chances. You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Our guest this week on our Wimbledon recap episode, James Gray of iNews, will shift over to the women's side and we have another first-time major champion. Elena Rybakina defeated Anja Burr 3-6-6-2-6-2 to win her first uh, slam. I, I suppose on the list of surprise major champions, where would Rybakina rank? I, I assume quite high up. Yeah, I mean, I, I really only started to mention her name that regularly. I think when we got into the fourth round, I definitely remember saying to George on our podcast, like, oh, you know, Rebecca is kind of dangerous. She's got a big serve. And um, yeah, so even in, even at that point, it was still like, oh, well, you know, she's someone. And, and frankly, there isn't much left in the women's draw. So almost anyone's got a chance. I think it, hindsight is always twenty twenty, but she was before the pandemic, like one of the form players in the world. You know, she had that really great hardcore swing at the beginning of 2020 and really looked like she was making a, a sort of breakout. And then obviously pandemic happened and, and everything that goes with that. And it's kind of a reset. But I think, yeah, she's pretty surprising, but you kind of reverse engineer it and you go, yeah, this makes sense. She's got a big game. Like, mm -hmm. you know, someone who she seems pretty nerveless. Like she said, oh, I'm just glad the match is over because I was so nervous. But I didn't see it like. She landed her first three serves of the match like flawlessly and cruised through. And I know she lost the first set, but you know, she, that didn't look like nerves to me. It just looked like Jabour played a pretty good set and, you know, Rebecca wasn't picking up the ball in the, in the way that she needed to. And then she just cruised through it. I thought I, I was really impressed. Like I'm really excited to see what the U S open looks like for someone like her, because you would think that the U S open is ideal for her. Yeah, look, uh, it's fascinating now, actually, you know, she'll be in Toronto um, and we'll, we'll see her in about a month's time. And I, I think her, uh, her coming to Toronto for a lot of Canadian tennis fans, they're, they're just learning her name, honestly. Yeah. And so um, we're, we're 
hopefully going to acquaint ourselves with a, a new superstar of the game. And now the question is, can she continue to win? And a, as you said, nerveless and, you know, decisively has two big weapons in her game, which is the serve and, and the forehand. Mm, just it, the only like thing is that she, she, she gets in front of the service line. She is completely useless. I mean, yes, <laughs> honestly, like <laughs> one of the worst net players I've ever seen in the Grand Slam final. Like there was, there was one point where she had like, she used to have a decent drop shot. She played a lot. I think she plays a bit less now, mm-hmm. but she played a very good drop shot. And Ons was, I mean, Ons was literally off the court. Like she was outside the doubles tram line and the ball was in front of Rebecca's face and she just swatted it into the net. I mean, it was like <laughs> club tennis stuff. Um, so, you know, there's clearly uh, areas to improve there, but you know, if she, as long as she stays at the back, then she'll do a pretty good job. And, you know, the US Open, the balls, obviously, you remember Ash Barty saying she, well, her, I think it was Craig Tizarek, she said she would never win the US Open because the balls are just so fast there and that she'd never have a chance. Someone like Elena Rabakina looks at that and goes, yeah, bring it on. I'll, I'll play on the fastest court I can. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Uh, Anjabur, uh finalist, and she was certainly one of our contenders, I, th- I think, going a- into the All England Club, obviously her form on grass. And a question mark, I guess, for me going into the tournament was, was she mentally strong and in a, in a good enough place, I, I suppose, to make a deep run and win a title, given what transpired at the French Open? So now I wonder, she loses in the finals here, does she gain strength from this or could this turn into a setback i mean if you ask her and i have and just kind of sitting in a room with her and chatting to her you would say no it's not a setback this is entirely a a a step forward and she said that she said no i feel like i'm sure now i'm going to come back here and win a grand slam but then they always say that right like that's what you have to say like you're not going to sit in a press conference and say no, that was actually awful. You know, you've just made a million quid and reached the final of the slam. Um, do I believe it? Not sure. I think Ons clearly suffers from nerves. But they clearly, you know, she, she, she's great. I love her to bits. She's a brilliant player to watch. Great variety. Her character is so obvious on court. She's got such charisma. And she's obviously a great role model for so many women in the world who are pretty underrepresented in tennis. But she clearly gets nervous. And I don't know what she's got to deal with those nerves yet. That, that's my problem, I guess. Um, look, there are going to be a lot of opportunities for a lot of different people to win slams um, over the next five years because we don't know how much tennis Naomi Osaka is going to play. Iga Shontek can't keep winning forever. It's just not like statistically likely. Um, <laughs> there are going to be opportunities. We know that in the women's game. And so on very much. And, and Wimbledon is definitely one of them because she moves well. She understands the grass. But, you know, a little bit like we were saying um, with someone like Stefano Sitsipas, if you don't have that mental resilience, it's a little bit easier in the women's game because it's two out of three, but it's still hard. And she's kind of proved that. Yeah. Um, a, a lot of, I guess, our, our discussion coming into Wimbledon was was determining who is comfortable playing on the grass, who really likes this surface. And mm. I logically sort of turned 
to veteran players based on just more experience playing it. And we saw, of course, Cornet defeat Spiontek, of course, an incredibly experienced player. And then Simona Halep started going on a run. And and I felt like, oh, wow, maybe maybe she can do this again. I, I suppose, is it logical to expect the veteran player to win it, whether it's men's or women's? Obviously, Djokovic has all that grass experience and, and continues to win. And uh, we did see a, a player like Halep in the late stages. Yeah, I think it. I think there is a lot of logic there. Um, you know, the grass—it's not the surface it used to be. Um, it's pretty much a hard court now in terms of the way the ball moves on it because it's so slow. At Wimbledon, especially, like you go play grass court tournaments at like Stuttgart, which is very quick, or Mallorca, which is pretty quick. Um, you know, Eastbourne, some of the the British tournaments, um, and it is different. But you go to Wimbledon, and it's so well kept, and the grass is such that actually those courts are pretty slow and the only real thing you need to conquer is how to move on it and I, I don't think that that comes with anything other than experience really like I've yet to meet someone who said oh I just turned up here and I just kind of got it immediately mm-hmm. like everyone the people who we think of as the best movers and the most flexible and you know they're the people who come here and, and learn quickly but you still need the time to learn you know Ons Wimbledon finalist really committed to the grass she's always been committed to the grass she she said she didn't know any of any grass courts growing up because she didn't but she's played quite a lot of grass court tennis this year she's obviously played i think she played doubles in in berlin as well as playing doubles in eastbourne and i, I know she, she lost first round that's right in berlin in doubles but there's a commitment there to spending as much time as possible on the match court getting used to like running around on grass in stressful situations and if you're going to play doubles with serena williams you're going to have to run around a lot so <laughs> uh, it's definitely like worth doing and, it, and it's paid off you know she made the final like and i think i hope other women learn from that and go yeah I, I need to go and play two or three warm-up events on the grass because it'll stand me in good stead when wimbledon comes around yeah, yeah, it certainly makes a huge difference. We, we saw our Canadian Bianca Andrescu play a couple of these tune-up events before Wimbledon. We thought she was looking very good on the grass, and maybe um, you, you take her early loss with a bit of a grain of salt and say she lost to the Wimbledon champion in Rybakina, mm. who, who played a, a great match. Uh, as we move into the hardcourt swing, it, would she be someone who's maybe on your list of, of contenders to, to do well on these hardcourts in North America and, of course, uh, in Toronto as well? Yeah, I mean, she's obviously got pedigree, you know, she, she's, she's won the biggest tournament on a hard court um, in North America. So that that's in her favor. She's clearly very settled in, in her own mind. Um, I've been amazed reading her story about kind of, you know, going back down to the bottom and coming back again and, and all the charity work that she's done. And I think she's got a kid's book out as well, mm-hmm. which I think it just kind of demonstrates someone who for whom maybe tennis once upon a time was the most important thing and maybe the only thing. And very quickly, because she's only 22, she has realized that tennis isn't the only thing. And it's amazing how quickly that that makes tennis easier. And it, it takes some of the pressure away. And, you know, you look at Tatiana Maria, mother of two, all of a sudden making a Grand Slam semi-final. And you think, well, yeah, like she knows that tennis isn't the most important thing in the world. So when she's serving at 30-40, like she, she's worried, but she's not you know, she knows that her life doesn't depend on this point. And for some people, that's a problem because you're not that committed. But when you're already a pro, you're committed. Mm-hmm. So actually, that freedom frees the arm, frees the shoulder, makes life easier. And, you know, means that when you do get broken, 
you go, okay, well, I'll just try and break back. And it, it creates that kind of forward-looking resilience. And this, you know, if Bianca Andreescu's body is right, her mind is right, I think she's a huge threat. She's so multi-talented. She's got so many weapons and can do so many different things on a tennis court. I think, I, I don't know, I think if she runs into like a Coco Goff or a fit Naomi Osaka in a semi-final, I think it's a good match, but I don't think she wins it. But I think if she gets a decent run through a draw, I think she she's definitely a massive threat. And, you know, we talk about surprise Grand Slam winners. She technically wouldn't be a surprise Grand Slam winner, but she's got a chance to be one, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. And uh, thank you for mentioning mentioning the book, because I will happily mention to our listeners that uh, BB's Got Game, uh, you still have a chance to to win a copy if you listen to this episode and uh, retweet it. We're going to give one more week on that competition. Uh Last but not least, I suppose, as we enter the hardcourt swing, is Igis Fiontek, should we still treat her as, as a class above the rest of the field? Or are you anticipating, uh, I guess, the, the parody that we've come to see often at the WTA? Um, look, statistically, there has to be some sort of reversion to the mean. Like, she can't keep doing what she's been doing to the women's tour. But... The grass is an anathema to her. I know she's a junior, junior Wimbledon champion, I think I'm yeah. right in saying. Um, but she didn't like the grass. She she said at no point did she feel comfortable. Um, I think I can probably back that up from from what I saw. Um, I, I, I think it's just completely different when she gets onto the hard courts. Her game is massive. Her head is super settled. She's super balanced. Um, I know there are things going on in the background that... You know, there's been a few changes to some of that team, which uh, certainly speaking to a few members of the Polish press haven't always been super popular, but um, she still seems to have her head pretty screwed on. I'll be very interested to see if she goes out and wins like two or three matches. I don't quite know what her schedule looks like, but if she goes out and wins two or three matches on hard courts, you know, straight away in North America, I'd pretty much immediately say, yeah, fine. Happy to back her as favorite for the US Open. Um, if not, then obviously that, that changes things a bit, but I, I, I would put my neck on the line and say, if she wins her first three matches on hard courts in North America, she'll be favorite for the US Open, or I would have her as favorite anyway. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's totally fair. Um, just as we wrap up, I'll mention to our listeners, Felix Oshie-Aliassime is in action this week uh, for one more tournament on the grass at the Hall of Fame Tennis Open. He is the number one seed and will open his draw on Wednesday. James Gray, uh, thank you so much for joining me for, for the Wimbledon recap. Loved your, your insights and analysis. My pleasure. Always happy to do it, Ben. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. We will talk to you next time.